1: My oh my, but how the summer wanes. It's the final day of August of 2023. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And before we begin, I heard from a listener with some valuable information about yesterday's discussion about people who retire and are get rehired. They pointed out that this is a great deal for the school district because they don't have to pay into the retirement fund and the rehired person does pay into the retirement fund, even though they'll never get benefit from that money because they'll never work long enough to get a second pension, even if they could. So for both sides of this deal, it's a good deal. That's one of the reasons they do it. It's a good Mm -hmm. deal for the the pension fund. It's a good deal for the employer and for the employee who wants to keep being paid. Thanks for the information. Now let's move into today's discussions. I do love seeing deer in my neighborhood, but a lot of people don't. And now we have reason to be much more afraid of them. Lisa, it involves the coronavirus. What is the kind of terrifying news here?
2: Yeah, this is interesting. This is a study from Ohio State University. Ohio white tailed deer have been infected in large numbers with the COVID 19 virus, and it appears to mutate three times faster in a deer host than it does in humans. So, what this could result in is variants that spread easily or become vaccination resistant. So, study author and OSU veterinary uh, preventive medicine professor Andrew Bomar says evidence is growing, though, that humans can get COVID from deer and they could become a reservoir for COVID that would re-enter the population in a new form or a new variant. So the way they arrived at these results is they collected 1,500 nasal swabs from deer that were killed by hunters uh, in late 2021 through March 2022, which is deer hunting season. These deer were from 83 of Ohio's 88 counties, including Cuyahoga. 10% of those deer tested positive. of counties had at least one positive deer case and uh, 30 deer appear to have caught COVID from humans. So Bowman says that, hey, this looks like the virus moves quite easily between people and some animals. The mechanism of that is still not known. But he's saying that if you're a deer hunter and you're at high risk for COVID, you probably shouldn't field
1: dress your deer until
2: more is known about this.
1: Well, the scary thing for me, we all were pretty surprised back as we were discovering things about COVID that walking down the street behind somebody who is exhaling who has COVID can actually give it to you. And that's why being in close proximity outdoors was a little bit more dangerous. Well, deer are walking down my street all the time and so does this mean I could be walking behind deer not long after they're there that has some weird variant of this thing that could get me really sick? I'm kind of changing my mind. I want them out of my neighborhood now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> they ate my sweet potato vines last night off my front planters. I am not happy with
4: the deer. <laughs> oh, God. Sweet potato vines are, are just, uh, they're annihilated this summer. <laughs> and yeah, the, but, actually, it's been terrible. But and now and they we, can
1: give you COVID. I mean, that's like, the I, who cares about? sweet potatoes do you want to get laid <laughs> up with some frightening variant I mean of COVID? actually
4: come to think of it maybe that is a, a mode of transmission to humans is that when I go out and try to revive my sweet potato vines maybe they're you know they've already infected them with their saliva and their
2: <laughs> nastiness Or you're just gonna have to stay upwind from the deer in your yard
1: Chris. yeah it's a <laughs> it's an enlightening study and I appreciate the information it does give you How? more reason you should look you should be approaching deer anyway right mm-hmm. yes this is or feeding them right you should
4: how were they able to determine that a group of those deer contracted it from humans how do they know
1: there must be a human variant
2: yeah I don't know they didn't say well, but
1: how else were they going to get it I mean it start it originated in China and it came to the United States the deer didn't get it on their own they had to get it from somewhere. Maybe you got them from dogs. Who knows? Good information. Check out the story. It's on Cleveland.com. And you are listening to Today in Ohio. Why are Ohio's elected leaders suddenly under the gun to produce new maps for the legislature? This is a strange one, Laura. I I really am looking at Frank LaRose as about the most incompetent person ever to hold his job.
3: You know, I was surprised when we saw this come over because we started talking about, hey, they do need to keep... They need to go back to the redistricting. It was deemed illegal last time. They still, we still voted on the same things. And we're like, okay, issue one's over. We'll get back to it. Just yesterday, Mike DeWine, governor, he's the one who has to set the first commission meeting, set it for September 13th. Well, that's about the same time that Frank LaRose was like, by the way, you need to be done with this September 22nd. And the reason he says this is because he did a whole bunch of math working backwards because you're like, well, why do we have to have this done so fast? This is working for the primary for next March, but the filing deadline is December 20th under the state constitution. Candidates have 30 days before that deadline, meeting November 20th to move into a new district. And before that happens, county officials need two weeks to update their voter registration system using the new district lines. So that gives you up another two weeks. That's November 6th. And then it took about Six, uh, two, two weeks to put information together. That's October 23rd. And then about they're leaving about um, a month for court battles because that's going to happen. We all know that that's how it works in Ohio. So his reasoning is September 22nd. There is no hard, fast deadline, but this is what LaRose is working off of.
1: All right. But think about this, right? He could have put out this warning in January and given them months and months. He's the secretary of state for crying out loud. He's supposed to be looking out for the voters in the election system. And he just wakes up yesterday and says, oh, we have a crisis on our hands. Look, this guy has done incompetent act after incompetent act this year. He he put wrong language into the ballot issue for issue one. It was so bad that even the cooked Supreme Court of Ohio said, no, you can't do that, made him change it. Then he sent out the wrong language anyway to some boards of elections before they said, hey, what are you doing? I thought this was fixed and Mm -hmm. it's a big oopsie. Now this this guy spent most of this year running all over Ohio, trying to get people to vote for issue one, politicizing his office. And he is not doing his job. I cannot remember a secretary of state who's done more boneheaded things than he has. This is on him. If he would have said to Mike DeWine and the legislative leaders in January, hey, guys, you got a deadline coming up. You better hit it. Then they're accountable. You can't blame them now. The, the other well, thing is, go ahead.
3: That's, that's what makes me think that. This is just him wanting to run out the clock being like, oh, we might as well just throw up our hands. We can't do anything about it now. It's just too late, which is exactly what they did last year. They ran up to the deadlines. There wasn't any time to fix it. And we voted on the illegal maps. So I I think this is kind of a false pretense.
1: Yeah, but it's his job. He's supposed to be looking out for the, the voters. It's well, just, yes,
3: he is supposed to be looking out yeah, for the voters. And
1: this, is, this is terrible. He He's terrible. I mean, this is an inco- level of incompetence. that she get him kicked out of office, for crying out loud? This is bad. You know, the other thing rolling around here is it sounds like Jason Stevens and Matt Huffman, the Senate president and the House Speaker, are battling over who's going to control this thing. You know, it was... The House was where the chair people came from before, but everybody knows Matt Huffman wants to be the next House Speaker because he's term limited in the Senate. And so it's going to be interesting now because even though the Republicans run the table, they're gnawing each other again because they cannot get along. So there's no way, unless they just come up with the most crooked maps possible and they vote on them and they shove them down our throats. um, It's just a shame that LaRose didn't set a much more reasonable timetable he's on the commission so he has right. a responsibility beyond his office shame and they on do him need,
3: they do need to take these two public uh meetings people need to see them and have a say i think there's like two or three required by law which is something we all voted on overwhelmingly that we wanted this redistricting process so that's got to be included in there the thing is it's really not that difficult right if they really wanted to pass maps in nine days they could they could say what do the experts say? Here's the maps. These are fair. Take them to the people and approve them. And there wouldn't even be a fight if they could do that. But we all know that's not the way it works. And it's a very partisan political process.
1: It shouldn't be rushed. This is inexcusable behavior by our secretary of state. He really has failed the electorate this year. I mean, the rest of the nation has called him the biggest loser on issue one. I think this is far worse. What he's done here has stuck it to Ohio yet again. And you're listening to Today in Ohio. The Guardians were back at the Gateway board this week. Layla, are they doing what the Cavs did and seeking more money, or is this the money we already knew about?
4: Yeah, fortunately, this, this isn't like what the Cavs recently did, which was, you know, ask for these upgrades to their arena that Gateway doesn't really have the money to pay for. For the Guardians... Gateway is approving $10 million for for upgrades to Progressive Field that were already in the budget for the Guardian's $435 million in improvements that were approved with their lease extension back in 2021. Under that agreement... The city will pay its $117 million portion using the city's sports facility reserves, parking garage revenues, and admission tax from baseball games. And the county pays about $138 million using bed tax, sin tax, and general fund dollars. State kicks in $30 million, and the team contributes $150 million. So so that's already signed, sealed, and delivered. On Wednesday, Gateway simply approved $3.3 million of that spending, which will include the replacement of 16 air handling units throughout the stadium. These things filter and move air throughout large areas, and they're really nearing the end of their life cycle. There are 65 of them there, and this will be the first phase in their replacement. The rest of the money that's before Gateway for approval, about $6.5 million or so, will cover stuff like intrastadium broadcast equipment, furniture in the administrative building, Freezers and coolers and a kitchen hood in the concession area. Again, all stuff that was anticipated in the big lease extension deal. But, you know, remember, the Guardians have been creeping up on their budget. You know, back in February, they added $1.3 million for luxury padded seats for their rich fancy fans. And that was considered to be technically within the budget because... The roughly hundred million capital improvements allowance could absorb some cost overruns, but Gateway is, is crossing its fingers and hoping that inflation doesn't bring about real cost overruns that make those padded seats a really ill advised splurge in hindsight. So, you know, we, we still have a budget to mind here.
1: When we first saw this, I thought could the Guardians actually be that tone deaf after the controversy of the Cavs to come in to ask for more money? But then we thought they're probably worried that the Cavs are going to take their money, and so they're going to try and spend it all. (laughs) But actually, it's neither. They're just coming through with what we had already discussed. Uh, That's good news, but it it doesn't stop them from coming back. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much money does a Washington, D.C. developer need to realize her dream of offering a place in Cleveland's Huff neighborhood for people to live and have a high quality of life? Lisa.
2: Yeah, Gina Merritt is the lead on the renovation of the 10-story high-rise at 9410 Huff Avenue. This apartment was built in the 1970s and has long been condemned. She says that she needs $3 million to redevelop that property into affordable, updated units with quality of life resources, et cetera. Um, Merritt's Northern Urban Development Ventures was chosen by the property owner, which is Huff GP LLC. Um, She's their lead developer, they purchased the building for $1.6 million back in 2021. Now this project has received $8 million from the Cleveland City Council under the Frank Jackson administration under his economic development plan. But she says with rising interest rates, that $1 million shortfall they had grew to $3.5 million. So I guess they're going to do a little bit of creative financing here. From what I understand, HuffGP also bought a shopping center across the street from this property on 9300 Wade Park Avenue, and they want to take that and make multifamily units, uh, some commercial space and some live work space. But she says they might have to use the payout on the high rise to get that project going, because why would you want to build apartments across from a disadmitted invested shopping center? So she's looking for help for that $3 million shortfall or 3.5 million. And she's looking to the city, the County and the state. And she says they could help bring new life to Huff.
1: I hope she gets it. Huff is one of those neighborhoods that can use all the investment it can get. This sounds like a laudable project and we assist so many other projects, but how often does Huff get the infusion of cash? So hopefully it'll work out for her. If it does, we'll be talking about it in a future episode of Today in Ohio. Laura, this this next one just does not make sense to me at all. Why is an ankle monitor, a judge's answer, for a state legislator accused of violating a restraint order by making phone calls. How is an ankle monitor stopping him from making phone calls?
3: I do not have a satisfactory answer for you on this. I actually called Andrew Tobias, our... Chief political writer and asked him about it. And he said he talked to prosecutors. Obviously, it can't do that. It can't stop anyone from making a call. It just reinforces that the quote, court knows where Bob Young is and hopefully offers some protection to his family. So, this is the second well, more than the second time we've talked about him on this podcast, but the second incident in that police say that Young assaulted two family members in July in two separate incidents. And then they, he called the person who was not identified three times last Saturday between 10.35 and one uh, p.m. So was contacting this person he's not supposed to be contacting. He The judge released Young under his own recognizance. He's not required to post money as, par, as bail. But he's still a state representative, which is kind of mind-blowing. House Speaker Jason Stevens has asked him to resign over the rest. He has not done so. Two Democratic legislators from Summit County are saying, hey, Stevens, get him off of his position chairing a House Pension Committee at the very least.
1: I, I just don't get the ankle monitor. I mean, if a guy is violating his restraining order by making phone calls, take his phone away. I mean,
3: or maybe just make him go to jail,
1: right? Yeah, Or something. But, but the ankle monitor, it's okay. But if I'm the person that he called, I'd be scratching my head saying, how does this protect me? You know, we all know of cases, many cases where people under restraining orders end up doing serious harm or killing the people that they have victimized. And the fact that this guy has shown he cannot control himself. He cannot follow the restraining order is a serious sign of danger to his victim. And I I just don't get how the ankle monitor is going to do anything. We've seen plenty of people on ankle monitors commit, commit bad deeds and it doesn't matter. They have an ankle monitor. I wish the judge would have explained the logic on this one. And I hope this ends our discussions on him. This is, this has all the signs of not going away and ending badly.
3: Yeah, it's bad news and I I don't think he should be serving in any capacity. Right now they're on on summer recess till the end of September. I hope he's gone when they return.
1: I look, the, you get one shot. You, you know, you're you got a restraining order because you're accused of physically harming somebody. You violate that restraining order, you go to jail. That's the only way to protect the victim. He has shown he cannot obey the judge. He shouldn't get a second chance. He's already had it. This is bad news.
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
1: There was a public hearing in Garfield Heights to figure out whether residents there like the idea of building a jail in that city. Layla, what was the upshot?
4: Residents at this meeting expressed a a lot of uneasiness about getting the jail and and uncertainty of whether it would help or hurt their community. Uh, uh, The plan, of course, would be to build A 1,904 bed jail on about 72 acres near the heart of the city at Granger Road and Transportation Boulevard. Among the residents, there are really two camps. Some believe that the jail would increase income tax revenues and job opportunities and make the city safer overall. Others said it would stunt the city's growth and tank property values and invite more crime. But at least residents came away from this meeting with a few answers from County Executive Chris Ronane and their mayor, Matthew Burke. Both of them support the project. The residents found out at this meeting that the 850 jobs that the jail would bring to the city, which would pay about $32 an hour, they would generate about $1.5 million in in annual income taxes for the city. Though that doesn't take into account any potential tax-sharing plan with the city of Cleveland, to take the sting off of losing the jail in Cleveland. But Mayor Burke said he thinks that the added law enforcement presence would also help attract new businesses to come settle in Garfield Heights. And he made the case that in areas of Ohio where jails were built, residential property values increased, contrary to the concerns of a lot of residents who were at the meeting And then Ronane made his pitch for why, from a human rights perspective, we really have no choice but to address the problems of the jail and that the extended sales tax is pretty much the only way to fund this project. He said he has tried to come up with another way, and there just isn't one.
1: We should point out that this jail site is not close to any residential neighborhoods, that it's removed from the neighborhoods in such a way where it's not going to affect home values really. Uh, And it was stated at the meeting that there isn't any history of jails like this depressing home values. I still look at this as a, a win all the way around. It's good for the county. It's good for Garfield Heights. It's good for people that have to visit the jail. In all respects, I think this is so superior to the downtown site that it should go forward.
4: Yeah, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting was that residents were raising points about, you know, they question the the wisdom of loading up the jail with a bunch of social services, which is part of Chris Renane's plan. When most inmates are there for about 30 days or less, some of them were like, well, what's the point of investing in services like that when you don't really have the time to make a difference in the lives of these inmates? And Renane's response to that was that some people come to the jail who have never seen any resources in their community before they... Commit a crime, so the jail could be their introduction to those services to prevent prevent them from reoffending later. And I thought that was a very interesting part of this community discussion.
1: Yeah, I I used to live in Orlando where they had different jail buildings with different sets of services, and it was very successful at helping people turn their lives around. Those thirty days can be game changers for people not having recidivism it it's very worthwhile having the social services look ronane has had some stumbles in his role so far in the eight months he's been there but i think on the jail he's put the time in and he's come up with a good plan we'll have to see where it goes you're listening to today in ohio last year's fall foliage was spectacular lisa are we going to see a repeat this year
2: According to experts, this fall is shaping up to be another spectacular year for autumn foliage in Ohio, and last year was just eye-popping. Everywhere you drove, it was just wonderful. Ethan Johnson is with Holden Forest and Gardens, and he says we've had really good weather for trees this year. He said, you know, warm weather and mid-to-late summer rains made up for a dry spring. And he says it actually helps if the soil is a little dry in the spring so roots don't get waterlogged early. But he says if they're too stressed by by drought going into fall, they can drop their leaves early. Uh, Color intensity depends on the number of sunny days and cold nights in late September and early October. He says, as far as temperatures go, a light frost can actually kickstart the leaves to transition, but too cold, it shuts down the process. So, and he talked about the three different chemicals that, that contribute to the colors. So chlorophyll, I think we all learned about chlorophyll. That's what makes the leaves green chlorophyll starts to degrade during cold nights, and that makes the other pigments visible. So the other pigments are carotenoids. Those are the ones that are yellow, bright red, orange colors, and they protect the chlorophyll from too much sun during the rest of the year. And then there are anthocyanins, and these are the pink, scarlet, purple, and blue hues that are produced in autumn. And experts think that anthocyanins might act as an antifreeze to kind of protect the trees and leaves.
1: Well, we've certainly had some cool nights of late. So, I I hope that uh, they're right about what we get to see. There's nothing like the colors you see in the fall. It makes you happy and believe in something wonderful. <laughs> I'm
3: so and, excited. And, and,
2: No, I was going to say my maple uh, in the back is already starting to turn just a little bit on a few branches that face the sun, so I'm already seeing a little color.
3: I'm saying I'm so excited that I booked Girl Scout camping the end of October. And I'm like, all right, we are going to get our full foliage in and sleep among (laughs) the trees. So hopefully that'll be a good one. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You know, Laura, when I when you drive around, if you have kids in the car and they're not in car seats or seat belted and a cop sees you, you're getting a ticket. And it's mm-hmm. always amazed me that in school buses they can do whatever they want. Is Mike DeWine going to consider requiring seatbelts in school buses following the death of a child in the first day of school a couple of weeks ago?
3: That is among the things that the new school bus taste. Sorry, School Bus Safety Task Force is going to be studying. So they're looking at a whole bunch of things, including regulations, the design, maintenance, and inspections, driver's licenses, school bus safety technology, crash risk factors, lessons learned from other crashes, alternative transportation Um, and critical incident protocol. So this is a group that is going to be meeting throughout the fall and have some recommendations by December. It has folks from the school districts, there's a parent on the board, and they'll be really digging into this. But I think what really prompted this and the big interest is because an 11-year-old boy died in his first day of school this year in Clark County. 23 kids were injured when a minivan crossed the center line and struck the bus in a northwestern local schools that's outside of dayton and there are school bus crashes every year there are more than six thousand between 2017 to 2022 but in those five years none of the people who died and there were six uh six people who died i believe those people were not on the bus so they could say look we haven't had a death but now we have and my kids don't ride the bus anymore but they were when they were really little you know three to a seat and no seatbelts, and you have those tall, padded seat backs, and you know, so they work in front of you too. But it's still, I mean, you, yeah, the, you wonder how in this day and age that's the safest we can get.
1: Well, the argument by people that don't believe in seatbelts is they, they say that buses are like egg cartons, that the kids are nestled in, which is just not true. Anybody I've also that's... heard
3: that, that the kids would be playing with the seatbelts and they'd hit each other with them. So but that this could be gener-
1: dangerous. But think about it. This generation of kids has grown up in child safety seats. Mm-hmm. They've never been in a car where they're not strapped in. I just Correct. don't buy that kids would refuse to do it. But I, they've I, never been in a bus with seat belts either. I know. It's just, it's one of those that I just don't understand. Here's the other thing why do you need a committee to do this? There's <laughs> tons of research. Why don't you just ask your public safety chief, hey, Go get all the research together. Make a list of recommendations for how you think we should proceed. I mean, it almost seems like you're, you're giving away your role as a leader to a bunch of people who, who will probably squabble about this. And I just don't get why you need a committee when the research is all readily available
2: but there's huge liability issues you're placing a real huge burden of liability on the school bus driver to make sure those kids are strapped in and stay strapped in during the journey
3: well there's a huge responsibility for any kind of school bus driver which is i think why it's been so difficult to find school bus drivers since covid i mean i feel like every district is advertising for them so it's not an easy job i mean you were they're always yelling at the kids cuz they have like what? They have 25 seats. You have two to three kids a seat. They've got 50 to 75 kids to keep in order while they're driving around. As a parent, having two kids in the back seat, sometimes they've pulled over and been like, all right, I'll drive again when you're not arguing.
1: Everybody who works in a school has a responsibility for children. I mean, it's part mm-hmm. of the job when you work with children to have a responsibility for the children. Uh, I don't accept the cost argument I mean schools this year have been replacing all their windows with bulletproof glass which has got to cost more than putting some seatbelts in school buses I, I don't I don't accept that the money's not available for that
4: Laura and I were talking yesterday about how it could be that the driver shortage could have played into this and and I think that we I have seen kids tripled up in bus seats and 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 if A seat is only equipped with two seatbelts. I could see how that would be problematic if you've had to pack more kids onto a bus than uh, because of a driver shortage. So I I, I see that as a potential problem. And I think, you know, we we Hannah Drown is going to look deeper into the the few cities that we have in Northeast Ohio that are piloting school buses with seatbelts and how those are going. Avon Lake ran a pilot program, and I believe decided eventually to pass Mm -hmm. on buying new buses with seat belts Mm -hmm. so we're going to find out why that was exactly so there's more reporting coming on this and and i'm just curious to know what the rationale um has been so far for cities that have tried it and decided not to do it
1: all right look for that story in the future you're listening to today in ohio why was a well it's not priceless it's 20 million dollar piece of art seized from the cleveland museum of art layla
4: Yeah, this is a a six foot tall ancient Roman bronze sculpture, like you said, valued at about $20 million and long described by the, the museum as representing the Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius. The museum acquired it in 1986, and it was considered the centerpiece of the museum's collection of ancient Roman art until the museum removed it from display a couple months ago without an explanation. But a New York judge has ordered the seizure of this statue because It's at the heart of an investigation into trafficking and stolen antiquities. More specifically, this statue is suspected to have been looted from the ancient Roman city of Bouban in southwestern Turkey in the 1960s and trafficked through New York City. Eventually, the Cleveland Museum of Art acquired it from the art dealer Charles Lipson. So that information came to reporter Steve Lip from an official speaking on behalf of the Turkish government, but the investigating... Agencies here are remaining pretty quiet about other details. Uh, Turkey first made claims about the sculpture in 2012 when it released a list of nearly two dozen objects in the Cleveland Museum's collection that it alleged were looted from the city in Turkey and, and other locations. At the time, Turkey didn't provide any evidence to back up those claims, but this past year, about a dozen artifacts worth $33 million were repatriated from other locations around the country to to Turkey on account of the Manhattan DA's office's uh, efforts to recover these stolen works of art.
1: Let's face it, there's no piece of Roman or Greek art that's sitting in American museums that wasn't looted. I mean, none of this stuff was just sold by the governments to... Art museums. Mike Norman, our life and culture editor, pointed out that there's a UNESCO deal that exempts anything that was obtained by museums by from before the early 70s from this repatriation. But anything the museums got since then is fair game but you know this is all this stuff was found by people searching in those countries and taking it out i mean it's it's all of it should probably go back it's it's,
4: i know none of it was
2: consensually
1: given to
4: (laughs) any art collector but it's sure gonna empty
2: out a lot of museums though
3: right and what happens i mean obviously if they got it from a reputable art dealer they paid for it right the museum did so what happens to all that money that they paid hit i mean do they get no. that back?
1: If you go steal something and sell it to me and then that stolen item is taken from me, I don't get the money back from you. You know, it's th- this is basically stuff that was stolen from the countries and the countries want it back. And I, yeah. how do you argue against it? I,
3: mean, I, I, I don't think you can. But I guess that why it's so important to check the prominent. What is it? What do you call provenance. it? Provenance. Provenance. Thank you. Yeah
4: yeah steve steve points out in his story that in recent years the museum has really acted in good faith when it comes to returning artifacts that were shown to have been looted uh, like this and in one case of a statue that the museum voluntarily returned to cambodia that ended up leading to a partnership and major exhibitions in cleveland including the recent revealing krishna show so it it kind of paid dividends to be a good steward of this art and return it back to its origin. But I thought it was interesting that um, that the museum a while back changed the description of this statue on its website from being clearly Marcus Aurelius to a draped male figure. Yeah. And and that university professor told Steve that she was dismayed by the change in the description because it suggests the museum is trying to pretend it knows less than it does mm. about the sculpture and where it came look, from.
1: Uh, look, put this in perspective. You know, America is not nearly as old as, as Rome and Italy and Greece. but But consider that if somehow in the Civil War, The Liberty Bell got absconded with by the South and ended up being sold to a country overseas. We'd be furious, right? We'd be like, give us our Liberty Bell back. This is the same thing. These are the country's treasures. It's just from a history of thousands of years instead of hundreds. And they have a right to their stuff. I mean, it, it, yeah, Lisa, you're right. It'll empty out museums. People might have to go to those countries to see it. Or maybe there will be traveling exhibitions. But it's the right thing to do. These, these are not American statues. They belong in the countries that, that, where they were created.
2: Again, then museums in America would only have American art.
1: No, they would still have paintings that they bought. I mean, there's been a lot of art that they bought. I just think the historical statues and things would not would not be part of it. Interesting story. Steve Litz on top of it. He's writing a follow. You can see it all on cleveland.com. And we've gone long on the Thursday edition of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Friday, we'll wrap up the week of news.